Today we're going to return uh, actually to the second leg of a sermon series we began in October. Just to refresh your memory at that time, we spent about 10 weeks talking through the most famous sermon of all time. As Fred pointed out, that wasn't the one I gave, that was the one Jesus gave. Um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in a series we appropriately called Sermons from the Mount. And then if you remember, we took a break uh, for the holidays. We took a break for the UPIC series. This morning, we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up with verse 43. And it's funny, I keep looking up there thinking we don't have the words, but I guess you have the words. So that's good. Um, since we're just a few weeks into the new year, thought we would jump back into uh, studying the words of the one who makes all things new, our Lord Jesus. Amen? But that, that wasn't the history lesson I was talking about this morning. This is the part I was alluding to earlier. This week, we're going to sort of unofficially celebrate what holiday? What holiday's coming up this week? You can just yell it out. Yep, there we go. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. And we say we, we unofficially celebrate Valentine's Day because Valentine's Day is not actually recognized as a public uh, holiday in the United States or in any uh, country around the world. Valentine's Day, if you didn't know, actually started off as a commemoration in the early Catholic Church tradition for several martyrs who bore the name Valentine from the third century. As the story goes, one of those third century martyrs named Valentine allegedly penned a letter to his jailer's daughter and signed it from your Valentine just before his execution. That's where that comes from. And the name stuck. By the 5th century, the church began combining this Valentine's Day commemoration with elements of the February 15th Roman festival of Lupercalia. I don't want to say that twice, so just remember, Lupercalia. Hey, I did. <laughs> In doing so, of course, as they often do, the church was making an attempt to Christianize this early pagan celebration. Uh, Lupercalia, that's number three, was actually a fertility festival. And of course, this shouldn't come to a surprise to us that the church would do this. They'd also do the same with Christmas and Easter. But over a couple uh, thousand years later, had the writings of uh, William Shakespeare and others that would help to romanticize Valentine's Day. By the 19th century, the handmade paper cards of the Middle Ages, as I understand, were replaced by factory-made cards, thanks to the Industrial Revolution. And here's some trivia for your next family game night. The first Valentine sent in the U.S., it is believed, was around the 1840, postmarked by Esther Hogwald. I think that's harder to say than Lupercalia. In 1913, as one source notes, Hallmark cards of Kansas City, Missouri began mass-producing Valentines. And let's face it, February has not been the same since. Valentine's Day is a big deal commercially. One market research firm reports that sales have recently reached, guess how much? $18.6 billion annually. That's a few billion. 
That's a few billion. That's almost as much money as the guy that just put a, a Tesla out in space has. $18.6 billion. Isn't it amazing how one little holiday tradition over time can equal big, big business? Wow. Now, if you haven't thought yet or you're preparing to maybe purchase roses or make some dinner reservations for your sweetheart, perhaps another special person in your life, as is your family tradition, I don't want to dissuade you this morning from doing so. In the interest of showing our appreciation for our loved ones, many of them would probably be the first to tell us it is the little things, isn't it? It's the little things, uh, you know, like a Valentine's Day card or some roses. Maybe Tiger season tickets. For me, it'd be Cubs, but I'm weird. These are the little things that people give to you that help say, hey, I care about you. I'm thinking about you. I love you, right? But what happens to Christians when our love for one another gets measured in terms of tradition? What happens to those who follow the Lord when our love looks like the love of the world? and not like his love. The printer or the retailer or the florist or the restaurateur might look at $18.6 billion in Valentine's Day sales and say, ain't love grand? Because there's a lot of money to be made off of love. I don't know about you, but it was only a week after Christmas and I first began seeing boxes of chocolates and heart-shaped cards strategic, uh, strategically placed, you know, up and down the shopping aisles of one retail store. And it dawned on me around January 3rd or so that culturally, yes, I am often actually encouraged to think of my loved ones first in terms of what I'm buying for them. Think about that. It hit me pretty hard walking around those shopping aisles, seeing all the varieties of candies, all the color red that the world wants you and me to justify our materialism by calling it our love for someone. How about that? Because that's love to the world, right? I love you, so I bought you this. I love you, so I brought you that. I'm not saying don't give people a token of appreciation on Valentine's Day. I'm not saying don't provide things for your family. But asking the question this morning, do we love like the world, my friends? Do we measure our love in terms of what we're getting, what we're not getting from somebody material or otherwise? Do we merely just love when it's profitable? Do we pick out the people around us who might be able to just do something for us and show them love? Does our love for others run about as deep as the words to a pop song? You know, baby, 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 baby. That's deep. Do we love the people, uh, related or not, who, who look, dress, talk, think, and have the same political views as we do and despise everybody else? Does the love we show contain partiality, detachment? Is it measured in terms of what we're going to get out of the deal? This is showing love like the world. And friends, this is what everybody does. This is what everybody does. But our love, the Christian's love, must run far deeper than love like the world. We are called to love like the Lord. How do we love like the Lord? Well, let's listen to his words. Matthew 5. Follow along with me. 
Jesus is standing on the mount with his followers in verse 43. And we're going to pick up where we left off before. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. That's the end of our text. If you remember again, December we left off, verse 42. We went through uh, verses 38 to 42. We stopped at the point where Jesus was telling his followers to avoid seeking revenge. If you remember that message, if you remember that text, avoid seeking revenge or seeking retaliation against your neighbor as someone with a worldly perspective might respond when personally wronged. And as we read together in this text, in verse 38 of Matthew 5, Jesus said what to his disciples? Some of you may remember this. It's a, it's a, a saying we've heard maybe in some old Western movies, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I don't know how many Western movies. I'm kidding. But uh, a lot of pop culture would reference this. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then if you recall, after Jesus reminded these folks of this Old Testament principle from Exodus chapter 21, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which meant the punishment must fit the crime. Then Jesus proceeded to tell the ones gathered around him on the mountain where they went wrong in following said principle. If you remember our study together, Jesus went on to basically say in verses 39 to 42, hey, you guys have taken an eye for an eye. You guys have taken this principle out of its proper legal context. You've made it about personal retaliation. You seek revenge like the world seeks revenge, but vengeance belongs to God, so stop seeking revenge like the world and start surrendering your own will for the will of one another. Jesus has just made it clear before this text that this is responding to being wronged like the Lord. Surrender of the self. If you remember that message, surrender of the self. This is where we left off a month and a half ago in the Sermon on the Mount. And now, as we pick up this morning with verse 33, with verse 43, excuse me, of our text, we hear Jesus continuing to preach using very much the same rhetoric, the same way of preaching to the choir to let them know where they were falling flat. And by this I mean he returns to the Old Testament. Look back with me in verse 43. Jesus says, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you shall love your neighbor. Jesus basically quotes Leviticus 19.18. It's a direct quote just as he's done before. But then Jesus does something interesting. He proceeds to make a point by adding this second part about what the church, God's people, were going to be doing in the future and what God's people had been doing. Hate your enemy. To hate your enemy was assumed by Israel to be righteous behavior, but it really wasn't. Where in the world did God's people pick up on the idea that they should hate anybody? 
Another history lesson this morning. Let's remember that God's people, Israel, had historically spent plenty of time worrying about their enemies, right? Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18, Israel had claimed the promised land. You remember this in uh, our history, in our Bibles. Israel was in battle. They were in battle against the Hittites. They were uh, in battle against the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Vegemites. That's not a person, that's an Australian food spread. I'm checking to see if you're paying attention. In battle against the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all the other ites whom Israel battled upon claiming the promised land, if you remember from this passage. Of course, God specifically commanded the Israelites to confront these nations. If you remember, their ways were corrupt. Their ways were corrupting their generations. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. But as one commentator notes, and this is where we ended up today on the mount, as time passed, Israel, God's people, would come to make little distinction between the highly corrupt Canaanites that they'd battled and the pagan but less corrupt rest of the Gentile or non-Jewish world. Later on, you can look at Psalm 139.21. The warrior David would actually write, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? In this text, David is specifically speaking of his grief of pagan sin. He's not labeling all non-Israelites the enemies of the people. But Israel would continue to struggle with partiality. Think about it from our Bibles. Think about it where God's people have been. Jonah, for example, didn't want the Ninevites saved by God, did he? He didn't want that. He wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. By the time of Christ... A popular motto of Israel's teachers of the law, the Pharisees went like this. If a Jew sees that a Gentile has fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. This man is not your neighbor. That was a popular motto at the time of Christ. And Jesus knew all of this. He knew all this, which is why he goes on to make a direct reference to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world in this text. By doing so, he's calling these Pharisees out on their religious hypocrisy. Let's jump down to verses 46 and 47. We'll read those again. Jesus says this in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Because you see, interestingly enough, God's people, Israel, truly believed they were righteous but they weren't showing love, God's love to others, any better than those non-religious or pagan Gentiles whom they despised. And God's people truly claimed to be upright, but they weren't any more honest in the faith than the tax collectors who had a reputation for thievery. God's people, by only taking care of themselves, had a worldly kind of love. And that's where Jesus is going today. Going back to Abraham, God intended for Israel to be a blessing to the world, to love like the Lord. Instead, what were they doing? They were helping somebody when it was profitable to them. They, they loved those who looked, dressed, talked, thought, and had the same political views as they did, and they despised everybody else, the Samaritans, you name it. God's people claimed to be religious, Yet they loved not like God, but like the godless. 
question this morning is what about us, brothers and sisters? What about the people of God today? Do we love our enemies? Do we pray for those who persecute us as Jesus has told us? There are roughly 2 billion Christians on planet Earth. Statistics say 600 million of them, 600 million of them from North Korea to India to Africa to Saudi Arabia experience high levels of persecution every day of their lives, according to one human rights organization. And if you're thinking, well, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, these are a few obvious places for persecution. It's not just a few places where we're hurting around the planet. The Pew Research Center says that over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions, many of them Christian. U.S. Department of State reports that believers in more than 60 countries around the world face some kind of persecution from their governments or neighbors because of a belief in Jesus Christ. Despite what the liberal media might tell you, friends, Christian persecution is ongoing in many places, it's worse today than it's ever been. Last year, Islamic extremists such as ISIS put to death more than 90,000 Christians worldwide. We haven't been hearing much about ISIS the last couple years, but they're still up to no good. Not all Christians live in southern and midwest Americas. We're often portrayed in this country, right? But I know many of these statistics may not affect us personally here in central Michigan. So how about us? How about those of us who do live in a part of the world where we're not like, as likely to suffer under the hands of ISIS? How does the thought of praying for our enemies strike us even when danger isn't near? I'm just curious. Because when Jesus says in Matthew 5.43 to his followers, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he is talking about members of ISIS. Do you realize that? And if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even members of ISIS do the same? Do we pray for those people? And by that, I don't mean pray for those individuals to suffer, but really pray for members of this terrorist group. Oh, boy. Now, I realize what I'm saying sounds a bit unbelievable. I mean, pray for members of ISIS. Why in the world would I want to do that? Sounds countercultural even. And that's because praying for one's enemy was countercultural 2,000 years ago, and it still is today. You know, it's just not second nature for us, Christian or not, to go home and say, yes, I'm going to go home today and get on my knees and start praying for terrorists. That's me. I'll be that guy. Those people need the grace of God too. I'll be their prayer warrior. But no one said following the words of Jesus was going to be easy. Now, here's the thing. we got to keep this in mind. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, Jesus isn't telling us to welcome our enemies in the front door blindly. Jesus is not suggesting we make it possible for those who persecute us to show up and persecute us some more. Jesus is not suggesting we should just welcome anybody into our homes without doing our homework first. The cities at the time of Christ had gates on them to protect the people. Jesus wasn't telling the disciples, get rid of your gates. Similarly, today, we put up security fences. We install alarms and locks on our properties, not necessarily because we want to keep out everybody else on the other side, but because we want to protect those that are on this side. Amen? 
So don't misunderstand. Love like the Lord, verse 44, and loving one's enemies doesn't mean we welcome people in without reservation. But you know what loving like the Lord does mean? It means we're no longer allowed to reinforce hate against someone just because we're told they hate us. There's another important distinction about love we need to make this morning. I remember when I was a kid, you're thinking, oh boy. Remember when I was a kid, I, I, I asked my mother who taught Sunday school at the time about a particular acquaintance of ours who, I'll put it this way, she wasn't exactly fond of the lady. You know what I mean? There are just certain people Certain personalities, you know, come into our lives from time to time. People we work with, people maybe we go to school with, maybe people who marry into the family. You know, and, and try as we might, we can just never warm up to these individuals. You know what I'm saying this morning? Someone has said that some people spread happiness wherever they go and others whenever they go. Maybe others whenever they let the door hit them on the way out. I think we've all known a person or two in our lives that when we see them coming, we want to say, oh, good riddance and God bless. Well, for my mother, this particular individual was definitely in the good riddance and God bless category. And so knowing the way my mom felt about this individual and, of course, being an ordinary young kid, imagine that. One day I decided I was going to question those feelings. In light of a recent Sunday school lesson, she taught on loving your enemies. With a big grin on my face, I said to my mother one Sunday afternoon, Mom, I know the way you feel about Mrs., we'll say Mrs. Smithson. That's fictional. We don't have any Smithsons here in the audience, do we? You've made it known to me, Mom, in so many words, your feelings about Mrs. Smithson. So anyway... About those feelings you have for Mrs. Smithson, doesn't the Bible say you actually have to love Mrs. Smithson? And I'll never forget that day when my mother, the Sunday school teacher, the minister's wife, looked at me right in the eyes and said, without the slightest bit of emotion, yes, Joshua, but the Bible doesn't say I have to like Mrs. Smithson. Boom, mic drop. And you know something, brothers and sisters? My mother was right. You heard it here first this morning. My mother was right. The Bible doesn't say she had to like Mrs. Smithson. And the Bible doesn't say you have to like Mrs. Smithson. Doesn't it make you feel a whole lot better? I doubt you know this lady, but whoever that is in your life. Does that make you feel better maybe about those people in your life? You'd like to say, God, uh, good riddance to, excuse me about the people who have turned out to not exactly be your best buddies, maybe by choice, maybe not. You absolutely in no way, shape, or form are under a biblical obligation to like your enemy. You just have to love your enemy. Think about it. How could a person in their right mind like an individual who joins ISIS? Matthew 5.44 doesn't just apply to ISIS, but if I had to guess, I'd say many of the enemies Jesus calls us to love personally this morning, they're not members of a terrorist group. They're our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, our uncles, our grandkids, our coworkers, our bosses, our business partners, maybe even our spouses. Liking these people is relative. It's 
What's going on right now? You're, you're liking this person based on what's on the surface of the relationship, whether they made you laugh that day or whether they made you pecan pie, whether they voted Democrat or Republican in the last election or whether they're fans of Michigan or Ohio State. Ohio State's an easy target here. I found that out. <laughs> as long as I don't say Michigan State, I'm okay. But Jesus doesn't call you to like your enemy or even to necessarily like those people with whom you share a bloodline. Do you realize uh, we have very little biblical information on what Jesus Christ, the person, the guy, the man actually likes? What is Jesus like? What his personal preferences are. Think about it. Whether you like something or someone doesn't matter a bit. But you know what makes all the difference in the world for your Christian witness? Whether you love your spouse, whether you love your children, whether you love your extended family members, whether you love your minister, whether you love your next door neighbor, whether you love those people you have to go to work with every day, whether you love your enemy, that's loving like the Lord. If every person on this planet actually loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them, think about it. In a while, there'd be no more enemies. There wouldn't be any people left to pray for. I realize that's not going to happen in this broken world, but man, to love like the Lord, to put others' best interests ahead of yours fully, completely, without fail, no matter who they are. What a thought. It must have come from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, is this going to be easy? No, not at all. This is not going to be easy. We tend to show outward love based on what we inwardly like, don't we? So anyone in our lives we don't inwardly like then tends to somehow become our, our competition in a way, don't they? To paraphrase one preacher, people have become our enemies because we have learned not to let things go with them. But in Jesus, we have to learn to be patient with our enemies. Be patient with our enemies. That's the key to let things go with them, including letting our anger go with them so that we can begin to look at them differently as individuals. And when we do this, friends, this person with whom we've become angry, he goes on, stops becoming our competition, starts becoming our equal once again. You see, that's what Christ followers do. The score is evened up. We make our enemies our equals again. So Jesus says once more, verse 44, love your enemies so that you may be, key phrase there, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What a beautiful way of saying this whole world of people, this whole mess, this whole group's one big equal playing field. Now, this doesn't mean Christians are to accept everything the world throws at us as equally valid because it isn't. But it does mean we'll accept every living soul on this planet as someone who is worth dying for. John 3.16. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 48 to us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we might read that and think, well, I'm out. Me? Be perfect? Forget it. But the word translated perfect, brothers and sisters, literally means be complete. Some commentators would add be mature. How can Christians be complete? We can start loving without partiality. 
we can love like the Lord. How do you respond to people you can't stand? There's the test. When you love the ones who are unlovable to you, think of that person, think of that group of people. When you love those people, then you begin to love like the Lord. And anything else falls short of his grace for any of us. 1 John 2, verse 2. Now, brothers and sisters, culturally, we view love by how it affects me. Me, 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 me. But the Lord views love by how we give up me for you. How we give up the self for others. February 14th this week, no matter how you choose to celebrate the gift of love, if you choose to celebrate it on that day, Pray that our celebration not begin and end with a man named Valentine, but instead on that day and every day that follows, may we remember Jesus Christ, whose gift of love by death on a cross saved us from our sins, Romans 5.8, giving up me for you. Love like the Lord. In turn, may we love our families in Christ. May we love our friends in Christ, truly love these people. May we love our brothers and sisters in Christ without partiality and without being detached. But what's more, may we love an enemy too. Love an enemy. I challenge you, friends. I challenge you. Love an enemy this week. Love someone you can't stand. I realize that's not the love of the world, but it's the love of the Lord. There's none greater for us. There can be no less. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you knowing that without your love, we are nothing. Lord, your word says that no matter what we can do, no matter what we think we can do, no matter what gifts or talents or abilities or connections or anything we may have on this planet in this life, Lord, if we have love, we are nothing. Lord, we're not perfect. Every day we, we sin. But because of your love, because of your love, your grace, your mercy, we don't have to be afraid. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, as we go back into our uh, lives, our, our, our daily grind, work, school, with our families. I pray, Lord, that you would put a desire in us to truly love. Love fully. Love like you do. I pray, Lord, that, that we would not allow our culture, that we would not allow the, the world to shape the way we treat other people. But that our love would be godly. Help us, Lord, to 
remember the love that's been shown to us, that sacrifice that's been made for us. We know what love is, Lord, because we can look at you and we can, we can look at that sacrifice that's been made for us. Let it change us, too, in the way we treat those that you've put near us. We thank you for your love. And it is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. God is love. God calls out to you this morning. Says, join the family. Because of his perfect love, there's an invitation. If you haven't made a decision yet to join the family of God, to experience that love. We invite you to come forward today. Come into the waters of baptism. Rise up. New creation. Forever. If you haven't made a decision to be immersed into Christ, we, we, we'd like to extend an invitation for you to do that. Or if you haven't yet uh, placed your membership with us this morning, we invite you to do that as well. If you're already a, an immersed believer in Christ, if you have a public decision you'd like to make, we invite you to come forward as Brother Gerald comes forward to receive. God is love. <laughs>